1: I'm Alan Alda, and this is Clear and Vivid, conversations about connecting and communicating. If it's possible
2: to turn compassion into a money, economic commodity, but if you can make a movie about compassion and understanding and have it be so glamorous, because it's a movie that you're paid to see, that you want to emulate what that is well, then there you actually have created a purpose for a movie
1: beyond the uh, uh, holding up the mirror to, to human nature. I first met Tom Hanks on a plane decades ago, and I ran into him a couple of times at award shows. And we even made a picture together, Bridge of Spides. But I never really got to know Tom until he came into our studio in Manhattan, and we talked about some of his eclectic interests, like finding meaning in pop entertainment, Communicating with children, and of course typewriters. I said he was eclectic, right? Come on in and enjoy the eclectic world of Tom Hanks. It's it's a really nice day in the neighborhood. Tom, this is so great that you're in here talking. Alan, I kid. can't.
2: Uh, I'm kind of I'm kind of pinching myself when you did um, you did a TV movie. This was long before the Green Show. Uh, when you you did a TV movie, it was called The Glass House. Yes. Uh, It was shot in a prison. Um, That's right. I'm still haunted by the final image in which you're the innocent man and you come, there's mayhem that's going on, and you are shot dead
1: Mm. uh,
2: on the other side of the wrongly chosen door. And it was a long shot of just you hunched over Mm. with all the backstory behind it. Now, that's a thing that you're in. I don't want to date myself, but I say I'm in junior college or high school and I'm watching on TV. And TV movies were not supposed to be that poignant in those days, you know. You had the occasional Brian song. You played uh, Carol Chessman, the... Uh, uh, the you, you know more about me I, than I, I, than I, I do. And, and I'm not just studying your IMDb. I'm just going on pure, pure <laughs> memory. And I I remember um, I was always I was on the lookout for... Um, Uh, for something other than the standard fare, of of television because I'm from the generation that knew what time it was by what was on TV. <laughs> you know, when Love of Life was over, it was time for me yeah. to go to school. Yeah. Um, uh, and uh, the every now and again there was when that ninety minute television movie came out. It was there was kind of an art form to it. And there and Steven Spielberg made Duel. That was right, one of the movies right. that came out during that time. There was Brian's Song, of course, that was about uh, with James Caan as as a uh, Brian Piccolo. The football all the guys at school were talking about the next day but the glass house and a few other a few other things would come along and i just thought well that's not that's not like an episode of manix that's not like
1: that's not like
2: the high chaparral this is something what do you else.
1: think it is what how do, and you've made a career doing this of doing stories that appeal to a popular audience who want to be entertained and yet have meaning, have a layer of meaning. Well, that's that, really—it's a trick to it, isn't what, it? Uh, so how, how, how have you gone about well, it? I've been lucky to be able to do that many times too.
2: You well, you kind of like in a lot of ways you set the standard
1: for like. Well, I don't know about well, that. Well, on the wow. Green
2: Show, you would do things because I know you started writing them, you started directing them as well, and you yeah. became one of the you became one of the power brokers there. On and the mm-hmm. Green Show, of course, we're talking about M apostrophe A apostrophe. Why do you acid. call it Green? I heard that somebody on the show called it the Green Show because oh, every know. day you went to work and you had to put on those olive drab uniforms. You know, nobody ever mentioned that to me. <laughs> Uh, maybe maybe it was uh,
1: oh I can't remember but
2: um, and you would do things like set set and set a half hour in real time you know yeah, the, show yeah. what happened in real yeah, that, time
1: that was a show I wrote with with the doctor who was our advisor oh and then there was one from the perspective
2: of the patient who couldn't talk because he had a tracheotomy yeah. and all the whole thing was from his, his perspective. point of view yeah you guys yeah would do we stuff we, like
1: we really that. loved it when we could tell a story in an unusual way. I remember and we don't this is this is a Tom Hank
2: podcast and I'm talking to Alan Alda about know, the secrets of his career. It. I remember uh, the first couple of seasons of that show, it would there were times where they tried to have kooky episodes.
1: You know, yeah, uh, yeah. boxing matches and, yeah, yeah. And, and whatnot. Traditional things. Until, until writers got used to the idea yeah. that we wanted a little more substance, they would give us standard service comedies. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 wacky visitors from, uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. higher,
2: higher, you know, you play a trick on a visiting colonel or something <laughs> like that. And then you guys seemed to like, Was I thought, is there was there a palace coup here amongst everybody that you ended up... Um, Doing thoughts of real substance, particularly, you know, look look what the subject matter was.
1: Well the, the Korean first, War and Yeah, UN right. Fremont. Well that that we wanted to make sure that I wanted to make sure before we did the show that we would not shrink from showing how how bad a war can be
2: there was i think too you had the surreptitious comment on vietnam in that show that we did not have anywhere else in popular culture per- particularly not on a on a network show korea was substituting for what we had just been through not that long before you know less than 10 years before the vietnam war ended so we had uh, in mash we had um we had you doctors presenting a humanistic portrait of how mad the whole thing was
1: and some people said that we contributed to the end of the war and i never thought so but i've heard you say in an interview that you felt for instance philadelphia did help the movement toward accepting aids as something we needed to work uh, on did you did i yeah, get that wrong did, do you no think it's that, possible to do that there was I, I
2: was answering a question at some point and it was <laughs> that was put. What What do you think you're going to accomplish with this movie? Philadelphia was a movie that cost X millions of dollars, and it needed to make that money back. Mm-hmm. It had to compete in the marketplace. So that's
1: what I'm asking you. How yeah. do you go about that?
2: Well, the the my answer, I believe, to that question was: It says, "Look, if it's possible to turn compassion into." A money economic commodity that if you can make a movie about compassion, understanding and have it be so glamorous because it's a movie that you paid to see that you want to emulate what that is. Well, then there you actually have created a purpose for a movie beyond the uh, uh, holding up the mirror to, to human nature.
1: But boy, there are so many movies that are the opposite of compassion. Well,
2: yeah, yeah. You know.
1: And that's fun. You know, I grew up
2: watching movies like The Seven Faces of Dr. Lau and Jason <laughs> and the Argonauts and, uh, you know, Doris Day movies, you know, Please Don't Eat the Daisies, things like that. And by and large, I was usually entertained by almost all of the movies Like that. I remember seeing a movie called—I swear—the name of it was *Duel at Diablo*. Was the name. it? Was a western. <laughs> it had Dennis Weaver and I think Sidney Poitier in it. Um, and those were those were the movies that we were used to seeing. This—that was a type of. Um, that was a type of commerce that even our, our parents had grown. You know, John Wayne movies. I remember going to see McClintock or Chisholm with my dad. And my dad was receiving two hours of entertainment just like he had been receiving since he was not in the 30s and 40s and 50s. It was a thing to do and spend your time. Then um, by, by the time I became dis, a discerning viewer, I was looking for something that I could recognize myself. I, that where I could see, oh, I've seen that. I feel like that guy. I've seen that in in my community, or I've had those same sort of questions about what life is like. And so a uh, not I, I would just say I ended up growing up watching movies about grown-up people going through grown- up things. and that was what I ended up. I was always attracted to the, the, those particular kind of human elements of, as opposed to, we got to get these 40 guns through Apache Pass. <laughs> That's <right. laughs>
1: When I first read your writing, I was surprised at how much I admired it because I didn't know of you as a writer. And this, your book of short stories is amazingly oh, good. Oh, you read that? Thanks. Oh my God, it's so good. You use you use language to get inside my head and surprise me and keep me amused and interested, but to get me deeper into the people. And you don't use language to show off, which I really admire. I mean, you you could be poetic if you wanted to, but you, you you're more plain spoken and and i really love that that's the stuff that i just naturally ended up gravitating
2: to you know the, i remember um we were asked to buy books at a quote-unquote book fair and i looked at these titles that they had on card table after card table in in high school or mm. junior high school and i had never heard of any of these books they were by writers i'd never heard of and they had titles i'd never heard of and I finally said, "What's the? Is this a scam? You guys are running?" No. I said, "No, we'd like you to. We'd like you to read. We'd promote reading." And it turned out that these books were specifically written for high schoolers
1: who oh, had never. That's read. why you'd never heard. Of so
2: them. the stories were simplistic. They weren't very. So I instead I, <laughs> I read. I read *In Cold Blood* by Truman Capote. That's the book I got, out. and it scared the living daylights out of me. And from oh yeah, from a very early age on, I wanted to read about the way things actually worked, and perhaps the way things actually—that's
1: exactly the way I approached reading as a kid. I was 11 years old, and a friend of the family said, "Do you like to read?" And I said, "Yeah, I really enjoy it." You know, what do you, what did you, what have you read lately? I said, "I just read *What Makes Sammy Run*." <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, my Lord. Had they
1: even read it? No, no, she she had this stunned look on her face, and then she said, well, of course, that, that's over your head. And I thought, no, it isn't. No, it's not, really. No. <laughs> it shows you how people really behave.
2: It's not. There's the granddaddy of them all. There's that experience when somebody has read enough of a book. There was a book that was going around, and the first line used the word crap in it. <laughs> yeah, All that David Copperfield kind of crap. And none of us had ever Seen a book in our library that had anything remotely like a swear word in it, and so all of a sudden everybody wanted to know what. Well, it was *Catcher in the Rye*, so oh, so we're reading *Catcher in the Rye*, and that led to led to nine stories and and also and to to be empowered, but to discover it yourself, I would say that to discover it yourself with the help of a good librarian who realizes you're hanging around and you might want to you might want to like be a little if, if like if if you if you enjoyed reading um, *Airport*. By Leo, uh, by uh, Arthur Haley you might enjoy reading Armageddon by Leon Uris. Uh, and so off begins it kind of like got a thing. When you were young, would I'd give up on 30 or 40 pages if I wasn't really into it. I still have a tendency to do I, that.
1: I, when I was young, I loved reading anything that seemed like it came from real life because I really wanted to understand how things got the way they were. Mm-hmm. So we had a living room that had been decorated, I guess, by somebody who bought books by the yard. <laughs> As opposed to the color? <laughs> well, yeah. they, were, they were red leather bound books, oh. but they happened to be the congressional record. So I'd open up a book and lay on the floor and read the congressional record from the, I guess it was from the 1940s. Mm-hmm. And I, I couldn't get over it. These people would say the distinguished member from Idaho and 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 they'd insult each other in the most elite classical terms. And I thought, well, this is fascinating. This is like a play. Dialogue, right, yeah. and I loved it. There
2: was that. There were those type of books that um, I pretended to have read for a long time. <laughs> yeah. You know, when I finally read Moby Dick. Oh, I loved Moby Dick when I read I, it. I, I, I pretended to have read Moby Dick for an awfully long time. See, I'm like
1: that with the Russians. Oh, well, I, I just I, I read I read War and Peace, but I pretend to have read the Raskolnikov book.
2: I would always get up to the Reverend's sermon in Moby Dick. And I couldn't get, I mean, this like goes on for 17 pages. And I, cu- I couldn't get past that. I couldn't get past it. And I was out uh, I was out with some some friends at whatnot. And a friend of mine, one of the guys says, what are you up to? He said, oh, uh, I'm reading Moby Dick. I said, ah, I could never read Moby Dick. He says, no, you can. And he said, if you could just get past that reverend sermon, it really, <laughs> it really does take <laughs> so off. So everybody had that uh, But uh, when I got past it, it's, it, I understand why it's now one of the greatest books now, ever. Now,
1: here's the thing. When I read your book of short stories, I think your you, one of your obsessions crept out <laughs> without. <laughs> my typewriters. Your typewriters. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean the the chapters begin with a picture of a different typewriter. What. How did you develop this obsession with typewriters? How, 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 do you, do you, how many how many typewriters do you have at home
2: now? Um, in at home, I'll probably have fifteen scattered about the house, but down at the office, I have like a hundred and twenty or something like that. I rest my case. Yeah, it's uh. So I, what I, is this? I gotta got I gotta start getting rid of them because my kids have said, "We're not going to bury you with these things, Dad. <laughs> you better you better start giving them away." Um, There is a story that is in that collection that is literally how I got my first typewriter. Um, A friend of mine was a year ahead of me in school, and when he went off to college, he gave me his high school typewriter, which was a, a piece of junk. It was like a knockoff 1970s version of a very, very, very cheaply made, horribly constructed typewriter that you could type on. Um, and I had it for a couple of years. And when I was in, uh, I was working in Cleveland as an actor and I needed to get it
1: fixed. Where were you in Cleveland? I was at the Great Lake Shakespeare Festival. Oh, I was at, I was at I the Cleveland Playhouse. You were,
2: no, legendarily so at the Cleveland Playhouse. Yeah. yeah, that was, the Cleveland Playhouse was the bitter rival of the Great oh, Lake uh, Shakespeare <laughs> Festival and vice versa, I think. Um And it was falling apart, and the carriage uh, was sliding, and when I returned it, it would not line up properly. There was all sorts of problems with it. So I took it to this old German guy at Detroit Avenue Business Machines on the west side of Cleveland. And uh, he he had a shop that was just jammed with every kind of, like, thousand key adding machines and what have you. And he was also servicing. By that time printers and, and copy machines and whatnot. And uh, he said, What can I do for you, young man? I said, <clears throat> Well I I need to have this typewriter service. And he said, let me see the machine. And it had a leatherette case and I opened it up and he threw his hands up and he says, I will not touch this machine. I said I, 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 will not tu- I will not touch it. He said, Well I said, why? Isn't isn't it your job to repair business machines? <laughs> he says, Yes, I re- I work on machines, not on toys and this is a toy. And he lectured me for the better part of 20 minutes about what a true typewriter is. And I walked out of there with a Hermes 2000 typewriter that he gave me $5 off uh, for a trade-in for my junk typewriter. And he told me, I'm just going to throw this away. I said, okay, fine. But that Hermes 2000 typewriter, which that particular typewriter got lost over the course of about 10 years and 10 moves, has since been replaced by well, you know, 119 machines. That, how, that how
1: did, like. how did I, I understand the story leading to owning. So the, you know, a, you're I, asking why? Yeah. You're probing deeper, Alan. I mean, I understand owning a typewriter because the guy gets you turned on to it. But how did you wind up with, you have an obsession with typewriters. I, I do. How did you get that?
2: You can change the world with a typewriter. Now, you can't change the world, too, with a pen and paper if your handwriting is legible enough. Mine is not. <laughs> there is something about the order that a, a good typewriter puts the words in. The, the, the margins are equal. The typeface is crisp. You can make mistakes, but go back over it. And what you come out of at the end of a piece of paper is as unique a creation as as is any oil painting, any watercolor, any photograph negative.
1: Did, did you write your your book of short stories on a typewriter? I began, I wrote about the first five pages
2: of one draft of the story on a typewriter because I didn't have my laptop with me at the time. No, it'd be madness to, in order to do it on a typewriter, but I type every day. I send a letter to somebody, I leave a memo, I... Put out notes. I, I I send a lot of letters on typewriters because there is something about the purity of the words in your head and the sound of the percussion of the of the keys hitting the paper. And I can't go back enough again to say the uniqueness of. Let me tell you a story. I was at um, Nor Efron's house. Uh, we were good friends. We worked together. And, yeah. And, and Nora was one of the great inspirations. And um, she had up on the wall of just in, a, in the hallway, she had a letter. And I leaned in. It was a framed letter. I said, oh, did Nora get a letter from – the letterhead was uh, Noel Coward. Mm. And it was a typewritten letter from uh, 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 Goldeneye, his place down in um, down in Jamaica right? His, 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 uh, winter home in Jamaica. And it said, uh, and all it was, was a letter to somebody thanking them for a very witty lunch, a lovely, a lovely afternoon at their house. And there was a little kind of like joke at it that was obviously shared between Noel Coward and and the hostess. And it was, and it was signed Noel. And I looked at that and I thought, Noel Coward typed that at his house in Jamaica named Goldeneye. And now it's Sixty years later, it's hanging on a
1: friend of mine's wall. Nobody throws away a typewritten letter. So a typew a typewritten letter kind of has its own signature, and you can picture that person's hands hitting the keys. Is that the idea? You
2: the force of your finger on the keys impacts the depth of it. Here's here's the thing: when you type with a typewriter, you are not applying ink onto paper; you're stamping it into the fiber of the papers. If I was to type out, Dear Alan Alda, which, by the way, I will. <laughs> I'll go home and I'll, I'll send you a letter. I can't um, wait. That the, the, Those are the D-E-A-R space, A-L-A-N space, A-L-D-A space, are not on the surface of the paper. They are inside the fabric of the paper. Uh, and that alone, to me, it turns it into a form of a graphic art. It's not just a an, – and never mind what idea might be communicated in there physically. If you put it in a drawer, it'll last a
1: thousand years. So I guess it was natural for a person with so many interests to go from loving what an old typewriter does to the fibers of paper to creating an app that mimics the very sound of a typewriter. More on that when we come back right after this. This is Clear and Vivid, and now back to my conversation with Tom Hanks. All right, listen to this.
2: Oh, that's uh, that's the typewriter app? That's uh, that's your app. That's, that's Hanks' writer, yes. Yeah, yeah. you
1: produced an app yeah. that does this typing thing, and as you type, you hear the sound of it. So, th- what is so seductive about the sound of the typing? I, 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 I will tell you. Thank you. I dropped my phone on That's the floor. That's right.
2: That's Hank's Writer. That's yeah. available on the uh, on the App Store. H-A-N-X- H-A-N-X. Um, I knowing that so many people compose on a, a laptop or a, a, it really a, a, a iPad or an iPhone, what's missing there is the percussiveness, the sound. It's not tap tap tap. So you have an, I think there's a choice now of five or six typewriters. Each one yeah, has a you different, have different sound. Type, yes, each I one know. has a different typeface, it, as it. though
1: you have a collection of six typewriters of your own. <laughs> do, you, do you? Can you type with all ten fingers? Oh
2: yeah, yeah. So yes. You like
1: without looking?
2: Oh yeah. It's a, sometimes you, you have to make sure you're not looking at it, so it comes out. You know. Of course, if you if you're not above the home keys, then you're then you're screwed.
1: Do you remember taking typing class? In I school? never took it. I wish I did. I, I've written all my life with two fingers. Oh, that's the worst way to type that there is. <laughs> well, because <laughs> I, it, I, number I'm, one, it's slow. Falling down in your estimation. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sorry, kid.
2: Can we wrap this up? I need to go. Um, that means you have to look at the keys as you're doing it, and you're going back and forth between what you're typing when you can touch type. Uh, which I learned how to do in high school to music to records. Why to make you go more rhythmically? Uh, yeah, um, because you weren't supposed. You were only supposed to look at the, ty- the the paper, not the keys. And the the records got faster and faster every week. Oh, that's that interesting. You were in. you, the music would say, "Okay and ready." Dun, dun, bum, 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 bum.
1: A A A space S S S space D. D D space. You know, I'm beginning to understand why I never took that class. Well, it would drive
2: you nuts. <laughs> but you in it for five or six weeks, and next thing you know, you're having like, a da, 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 da and go. A A W K S space, W K S space, L M E
1: space. You had to go like that. The problem is when they put on a Spike Jones record. Well, then
2: you then you got like an acid trip, you know. It was like gibberish down there, but man, could it sing.
1: But this is so interesting. I mean, you you must have some when people collect things they get an intimate relationship with the things they collect now for instance when you if you, people have a collection of Stradivarius violins have to play them every once in a while to keep them in shape That's do you right. have to type on your yes, typewriter you I, do what happens of, you, I,
2: I have some typewriters that are simply objects of art they sit on a shelf and they're never used but the vast majority of my collection are working manual typewriters that i rotate into use So that they all get uh, they all get used in the course of a course. Are they
1: special typewriters? Nothing special about them. Like no first edition kind of thing.
2: Um, I got. uh, I think the most valuable typewriter I have is an oddly enough an IBM Selectric that Leo DiCaprio used in the movie Catch Me If You Can. (laughs) And it's funny. I went. I went to the. I went to the prop master after we were done shooting the scene, and I said, "I will give you twenty five dollars for that." IBM Selectric. And they said, okay. And he took $25. He said, you know, you could have had it for free. <laughs> you know, I'm going to give this to the prop guy. Um, and no, but it, it's not about who who typed it. I have one typewriter, I think, that was owned by Mickey Spillane. I can't prove that he wrote anything on it, but I, it, there's a providence that says Mickey Spillane owned the typewriter. But all my typewriters were worth about 60 bucks, you know,
1: tops. And if I signed them, They're worth about 62 bucks, (laughs) tops. (laughs) Well, it's Uh, a fascinating obsession to me. When you talk about the keys getting into the texture of the paper, there's something about that. It's not mechanical. It, it, there's a there's a human element to these machines that I think you see. I now think faster on a
2: typewriter than I do with a pen in my hand, or even on even on my laptop. That's
1: interesting. Your your nervous system on the keyboard is I, helping you. And uh, I'd
2: rather get going and stick with it than pause and go back and edit and delete.
1: I saw you yeah. saying it in an interview for this movie that's coming out now that I'm so interested in seeing. I haven't I haven't had a chance to see it yet. Mr. Rogers. A oh, Beautiful who, um, Day in the
2: Neighborhood. Right.
1: Yeah, yeah. So I saw you say, is this true that you felt you learned to listen better playing Fred Rogers?
2: Mari Heller, who is the director. Yeah. Well, a wonderful was, director. Oh, she's, she's the boss. We were talking about this very thing, about Fred's... The great power he had and also a defense mechanism, too, was to listen and not talk. Let the other person, let who you're talking to reveal themselves Uh, in the silence as well as from a single question. Because we have a tendency, like, for example, for kids to meet a kid for the first time and say, hey, how, how old are you? Do you go to school? What grade are you in? What's your favorite subject? Do you have a lot of friends at school? Do you like baseball? We don't even give them a chance to answer the question we just asked them. And, and Fred, particularly with children, would he did this thing, and it's, it's kind of like that. He wouldn't even ask them a question. He would say things like, well, <clears throat> uh, you, 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 that, that's a very impressive belt buckle you're wearing there. And then wait. And then wait for the kid to talk about either the belt buckle or the contest that he wore the belt buckle with. And with my own kids, I, I went back and said, I I, thought, I think every parent would be a little bit better by listening to their kids talk as opposed to waiting for them to answer. Yeah, that,
1: that's a, an error that I made when my kids were small.
2: Did you ever like pick them up from school and say, hey, how was school today? What happened, and they would never tell you you have. Yeah. you gotta wait them out until they start oh
1: you the the answer that s- serves every purpose is fine yeah fine fine i what, yeah. what, you know. um, had we had our first kid probably I was a year older than you were when you had your friend. i was tw- about twenty two
2: i was i was i was twenty yeah twenty one
1: yeah and we 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 were kids ourselves. <laughs> So it's it I I I grew up with my kids and learning from them. You learn a lot about who you are from your children, especially when they do what they do things you do and you don't like the look of it.
2: I remember at one point I had a I had a, a jacket that I couldn't get unzipped. The the zipper was was stuck. Yeah. And I got really frustrated. I went, and I just pulled it off and broke the zipper and threw the thing. Well, what did my son do the next day? Same thing. He was putting on something and ripped it apart and threw it down in the corner. I said, Oh, look what I taught my son. (laughs) Look what, look at, look at the impatience that he has now inherited. So
1: I, I get angry at objects like that. I get angry at coats, at coat hangers, doorknobs that don't open. Right. The, um, you and I both have this reputation as being Mr. Nice Guy, but look out! Yeah, <laughs> that's right. If you're if you're a coat hanger, you better watch your step. Have with you mate. ever have you ever used this phrase? Let me get this straight. That's I, what when I, I,
2: I when I pull that out, everybody knows they're in trouble now.
1: Yeah, I have the equivalent to that, which is I, I used to do it a lot when I was younger. if a producer would start to take advantage of me, you know, with money or something like that. I would get very quiet, and I'd talk in this tone that was so quiet it was sort of ominous. And then if somebody really wronged me, I would say, I'll tell you what, I can forgive or forget, which would you like? Everybody came
2: out of your office or dressing room quivering after that. That kind us of thing. You know, I, I have a thing uh, that I said, just, you know, look, I, I think I'm a well-mannered guy. I think I'm a good-natured guy. But woe to you who takes advantage of my good
1: nature. Uh, for years, I thought, boy, I love a good lawsuit. <laughs> because it would be a way to explain to them, just because I'm not aggressive and clutching you by the throat, that doesn't mean you can take advantage of it. Uh, yeah, and
2: there are people there who will take advantage of you at the very first opportunity. Yeah. And shame on us for not recognizing it sometimes, but doubly shame on us. We allow them to do it once, once they've defined who they are.
1: You have this thing on Twitter where you take pictures of things that people lost. Mm-hmm. I, I, do, do, you, do you give them a hint about where it is? I, <laughs> I've done. I've done talk, that. Ab- talk about being cruel. I've done that <laughs> once. I found
2: somebody's uh, a Fordham University student law uh, an ID was in Central Park, and I just uh. picked it up and I. Post. I covered their name and I posted it. And uh, they said, if, you, if this is yours and you need it back, contact my publicist. And they did very quickly. It was astounding how fast it happened. I think the the girl had her ID back that afternoon, wow. which is like, well, that's
1: a great power service. Tru- but what about all these gloves
2: you Well, th- the gloves came about because I was working, I was in New York City and I was working uh, during one of the springs. And when the thaw came out, you know, in the, oh, snow the gloves all showed murdered, up. there's. It's like you'd see, okay, a cheap plastic glove. That's one thing, a ski glove or something. Like that. But what do you see? That there it is. It's fine Moroccan leather. It's some rich guy, some hedge funder <laughs> has lost. You know, I'm going to say if if the if a pair of gloves costs five hundred bucks, this is a two hundred and fifty dollar glove that's laying there <laughs> in the slush, you know, on on uh, uh, on Columbus Avenue in the in the low sixties. And I just think, hey, that's a lost glove, man. There's a story behind that lost glove. Love that and baby pacifiers.
1: See a old, lot of, like, I can understand of, that. A
2: lot of baby pacifiers. Well, it's like, why, why is the baby con- complaining so much? I don't know. I lost the pacifier. So.
1: Was there uh, an especially weird thing you found that you took a picture of? Uh, there was a spatula. <laughs> oh. A spatula. Where'd you it, find that? Down the middle of
2: 45th Street and, and 9th Avenue. Oh, the Spatula District. Oh, I. <laughs> And here's what I thought. Okay, someone was, maybe they were moving, you know, and they had all their kitchen utensils Dropped in off the, box. the back of the car. And it's like, it rattled just enough. So, you know, the uh, the vegetable strainer stained, uh, the, col- the, the colander stayed, a couple of the knives, but that plastic spatula <laughs> went flying out the window. And I think, are they going to miss this spatula? And it's a lost item that yearns to be taken home.
1: There's so many things I want to talk to you about, and we're running out of time. Um, I wanted—I've seen you. I've seen you do a eulogy at a funeral, and you're so funny at funerals. You're, you're <laughs> hilarious. Don't you find that show business funerals are really good because people often do an, an impersonation of yeah. the dead guy?
2: Yeah. There is a lot of joy. It's, I find them they oftentimes they're celebrations of the joy that person
1: brought to right, everybody. Right, right. You know, and it's a great that. relief to be able to laugh if, if you can if you can do it in in the most uh, you know uh, loving way. And hey, we're in the business of show. That's so right. It's essentially there's the there's the crowd,
2: right. <laughs> there's the microphone, and there's the dead guy. <laughs> yeah, I was at when when we lost John John Candy when he passed away. He was that was the first time I think in my life where a peer that I had loved and worked with mm. was taken away from. I, I worked with John too. John, and it I it was very it was perplexing and it was sad. I said I this I don't know why is it why does this happen? I I'm prepared to be seventy two and start you know losing buddies, but not not here. And and at his, um, at his funeral at St. Martin of Tours uh, in Los Angeles, Danny Aykroyd, who knew John about as well as any human being did, he, his eulogy had me laughing and in tears. It had me in awe of who John Candy was and uh, desperately missing him all at the same time. And I actually thought that Danny Aykroyd just put on a clinic of how to say goodbye to somebody that
1: we Yeah, love. and I, I've seen you do the same. I did my father at his funeral, did it, and it was... It was it, it was a nice thing to do. It made people laugh, and it made me brought me brought him back to me for a now minute. Now you brought you had your dad on
2: on the Green Show. He came, yeah, he he came the in the Green he, Show. I thought you were talking a, about the Green he, Mile. He, when you he, said. he was he was on, and I remember that came up. And I did not realize that your dad was a you know recognized. Oh, he
1: was that. a very famous actor and in he, the forties. Yes, he and was, and he did Guys and Dolls on Broadway. Oh, two, two great successes, and uh, not Cole Porter.
2: He did uh, uh, forgive uh, me uh, the Check that out on Turner Classic Movies one of these days.
1: That movie moves me all the time. Mm -hmm. So we got to go. But before we go, we always ask seven quick questions. Bring them on. They're harmless. Okay, okay. That's what you say. (laughs) They're roughly to do with communication. Okay. What do you wish you really understood?
2: I wish I understood the power of serendipity, of that it is possible to be... Why is it possible to be in the right place at the right time and be in the wrong place at the wrong time? Where, 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 where's the magic of that roll of the dice? Yeah, I, I, wish, I, I wish I understood the, the ability to have faith in that.
1: These damn questions always invite a whole other podcast. I know. And, uh, I I I let, know. I'll come back. Oh, that would be great. Okay, second question. How do you tell someone they have their facts wrong? I say uh, you have your facts wrong. I'd say that great
2: quote of Patrick Moynihan, dude, you're
1: entitled to your own opinion, but you're not entitled to your own facts, and yeah. you got yours wrong. Yeah. <laughs> what, number three, what's the strangest question anyone's ever asked you? Oh, what's it like doing blank, blank, blank? The idea of what's it like?
2: Yeah. What's it like? It's like being a dog in a tree on Christmas in
1: July. That's what it's like. I know I know, you know exactly, you know, I know exactly yeah, what you're yeah. talking about. How do you stop a compulsive talker? Oh, um, by n-
2: not pro- prolonging the conversation. I have a tendency to say, ah, oh, 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 fascinating.
1: But you don't do that. Oh, stop this. stop doing that. Stop you go it. into your Fred Rogers mode. Uh, just get, wait them out. Just wait them out. Exactly hey, right. And
2: let them talk themselves into a circle.
1: How do you like to start up a real conversation with someone you don't know at a dinner party sitting next to you? Hmm. I I I broach it this way. You know, could I ask you a very
2: specific question? And they usually say, and then I have come up with a specific question. I was with somebody and they were in the trucking industry. And I said, can I ask you a specific question? Yes, this is. Is there a particular personality that goes along with being a long-haul trucker? <laughs> this this person talked for 20 minutes oh, <laughs> about great. the difference between the guy who del- makes deliveries and comes back oh, and the personality so that, yeah, that, this that, that drives
1: a, across the country three times a month. This is a great tool. Okay, next to last question. All what right. gives you confidence? Oh, uh other outside of very, very little.
2: Um, (laughs) uh, I will, I will say this, um, that I have confidence that I have figured worse things out over time.
1: Yeah. I know that. If I
2: figure that out, I can figure this, I can figure this. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Good. Okay. Last question. We sort of touched on this, but this is, can I ask you a specific question?
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, you, my, there's my medicine coming back to haunt me. What book changed your life? Uh, uh, my name is Asher Lev. Mm. I, uh, that's written by a, 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 a called Jewish writer, uh, Chaim Potok, if I'm You're pronouncing right. his name yeah, correctly. Yeah. He wrote a long string of books. Uh, I think the most popular would probably be called The Chosen. Um, which is about, they, they turn it into a movie with Robbie Benson about Orthodox kids playing baseball, Orthodox Jews playing with, with mm-hmm. a payus and the whole mm-hmm. thing. Uh, and I read that and I thought, how did this Jewish guy that grew up in, uh, Orthodox Jew in Brooklyn or New York, how did he write about me? Mm. because I felt as though I was going through it. Then he read he wrote a book called uh, DeVita's Harp, and he wrote two books about uh, an artist. uh, One name is My Name is Asher Lev. The other one, it's a gift to Asher Lev. It's about an artist of of Orthodox Jewry. And I thought, I don't know anything about Orthodox Jewry. I've never lived in New York City in my life. This is before I'd ever lived in New York City, and yet this guy has written my life story down on on paper. And it was one of those kind of nonfiction books in which the world that it takes place in is so perfectly and accurately captured on paper that even though the characters are fictional probably based on his own autobiographical material but it's all it was a novel it wasn't a, it wasn't a history book it wasn't nonfiction and i just saw the world and i saw i saw myself in the body of this Six, seven, eight, nine, ten, thirteen—teenage year-old boy who grew up as an Orthodox Jew who had visions of of art in his head that were—he was he was constantly he was raised in an atmosphere that says that's not what good people do, they don't go off and and become artists. That's a long way of saying that I grew up in an atmosphere in which what are you going to do with your life? You're going to. You got to be in the restaurant manager. You're going to become a bookkeeper. You're going to go to school. What are you going to do? And when I was saying things like, I don't know, I, there's this thing called the theater you might make your living at. And they, they was like, no, nah, you can't make your life in a the theater. So it was a little bit like that. So that. I would say, the, my name is Asher Lev, if I'm pronouncing those words correctly, <laughs> yes. by Chaim Potok, if I'm pronouncing his name correctly. Uh, that was one of the most important books I ever well, read. Well,
1: you and I were brought together for this podcast by a great writer, Ann Patchett, oh. who helped us set up this date. And that changed our lives a little bit.
2: Well, and, when I was asked by our, our peers at the Screen Actors Guild if I'd say a few words for your uh, Lifetime Achievement Award, was that two years ago? Well, year it was last ago? January. Last January. I thought, oh, let me add it. I know, ah, well, exa- I know so exactly great. what I want to say about Al. You Alden. were so
1: great. Thank you so much for being on oh, the show Wonderful today. talking to you. I loved it. This has been clear and vivid, at least I hope so. My thanks to the sponsors of this episode. All the income from the ads you hear go to the Center for Communicating Science at Stony Brook University. Just by listening to this podcast, you're contributing to the better communication of science. So thank you. As a two-time Oscar winner, Tom Hanks is an absolute legend. He's a Hollywood icon and a measurable talent. And someone I'm really fortunate enough to have worked with. He's got a youthful curiosity that's inspiring. And if you haven't seen him as Fred Rogers in his most recent film, A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood, do check it out. The film is now streaming on Amazon. I've been having fun with the Hanks Rider Typewriter app. You can download it by visiting hankswriter.com. That's hanx writer.com. And to stay up to date with all of Tom's latest, be sure to follow him on Twitter. I certainly do. He's at Tom Hanks. That's without the X. This episode was edited and produced by our executive producer, Graham Chedd, with help from our executive producer, Sarah Chase, and our associate producer, Jean Shermay. Our sound engineer is Dan DeZula, our tech guru is Allison Costin, and our publicist is Sarah Hill. You can subscribe to our podcast for free at Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. For more details about Clear and Vivid and to sign up for my newsletter, please visit alanalda.com. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at Clear and Vivid, and I'm on Twitter at Alan Alda. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. We've started something new on Clear and Vivid. It's called Patreon. And it allows you to directly support us and engage with us in a much closer way. If you visit patreon.com clearandvivid, here's what you'll find. For as little as
0: $2 a month, listeners of Clear and Vivid can get exclusive behind-the-scenes access. You can find video, extra content, bonus episodes, and all sorts of fun stuff, including behind-the-scenes pictures. And for those of you who have seven questions of your own for Mr. Alan Alda, you might find some answers there, too.
1: Now, you don't have to subscribe for as little as $2 a month to keep listening to the show. You can continue to listen to the show and support us by hearing the ads. But you can get all this extra material if you do decide to become a subscriber. And most importantly, your patronage directly funds our work at the Alda Center for Communicating Science. Give Patreon a try. That's patreon.com slash clearandvivid. C-L-E-A-R-A-N-D-V-I-V-I-D. Next in our series of conversations, I talk with the great Paul McCartney. We talk about his extraordinary career and how it came to be. There's a song we did with the Beatles, She Loves You, yeah, yeah, yeah. And the end is She Loves You, yeah, 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 yeah. And there's a big chord, and it's actually a sixth chord. huh? So. We yeah, um, did on a sixth. Yeah, we did a sixth. Now, we didn't know it was a sixth. <laughs> we just thought it sounded great. And George Martin, our producer, said, No, no, you can't do that. He said, That's a sixth. We went, oh, yeah. He said, It's really corny. Corny. You know, it's like, yeah, yeah. And we said, well, we like it. So we kept it, you know. So those kind of things where you, it was a it was a great voyage of discovery because you were learning all these little things yeah. as you went along and you were keeping yourself excited. Yeah, that's so important. And, very and, important. and that led to you doing so many different kinds of things. Yeah, Paul McCartney actually shows me how he writes a song. Next time on Clear and Vivid.